Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. This week's episode is a story about a guy who decided to bootstrap a startup. He cashed in his 401k retirement plan, so he had enough to live on. He wanted to use data and algorithms to help SaaS businesses figure out how to price their product instead of just going by gut feeling. And he didn't really know what type of business he was going to create. He just had a hunch that there was a business opportunity and was willing to take a risk. We talk about the challenges he's faced both professionally and personally in trying to launch and grow a startup and specifically what he did in the early days to drive growth. Today, his company now employs about 30 people, and his customers include companies such as Wistia, Big Commerce, Optimizely, Zapier, and more. His company is able to charge customers a minimum of $30,000 a month. His background is in economics and math, and in past roles, he's worked with the US Intelligence Service and Google. He's a super smart guy, but very down-to-earth and humble. And in this episode, he shares not only his story, but also provides a step-by-step process on how you can use the same strategies that he does with his customers to figure out your own pricing plans. One thing you should know is that about halfway through the interview, his entire office block had a power cut, which lasted hours. So we had to resume the second half of this interview a few days later. So I just wanted you to know that. So when you're listening and you kind of wonder what happens halfway through, now you know. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Are you looking to sell your online business or buy one to start your entrepreneurial journey? Discover exciting opportunities with Bupos.com. Bupos is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses and the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers. At Bupos.com, you can explore their exclusive listings, browse listings from other marketplaces, or submit your own deal for approval. Bupos can offer pre-approved financing for recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding with no personal guarantees. And their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash Bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to sell your business or find your next deal. Is your team struggling with spreadsheets that can't keep up with your workflows? It's time to switch to JotForm Tables. JotForm Tables is an all-in-one workspace that lets you collect, organize, and manage data seamlessly. Not only can you create online forms to gather data directly in JotForm Tables, but it also serves as a powerful tool to manage and analyze the data collected from your existing JotForm forms. You can also import spreadsheets or enter information manually, and all your data is stored securely in one place. JotForm Tables makes collaboration a breeze. You can share your tables with a single click and work with your team in real time. Say goodbye to version control issues and hello to efficient teamwork. Get started with JotForm tables for free today at sasclub.io slash jotform. That's sasclub.io slash jotform. 
Hey, are you struggling to grow your SaaS business? As a SaaS founder, you know that having the right tools is crucial for growing your SaaS business effectively. But with so many options, choosing the best ones for your needs can be overwhelming. That's where the SaaS toolkit comes in. This handy guide covers the 12 essential types of tools you need to supercharge your growth. Inside, you'll find a detailed look at tools successful SaaS startups have used to scale to seven figures and beyond. It gives you specific examples and makes practical recommendations to help you choose the right tools for your SaaS business. Don't miss out. Visit thesastoolkit.com to download your free copy and unlock faster growth for your SaaS business. That's thesastoolkit.com. Today's guest is the co-founder and CEO of Price Intelligently, a Boston-based startup that helps SaaS businesses to come up with the right pricing strategy. The company gathers data from multiple industry sources and uses its proprietary algorithms to help SaaS businesses figure out how much customers are willing to pay for each feature and how to optimize their overall pricing plans. The company was founded in 2012 and has been bootstrapped from day one. So today I'd like to welcome Patrick Campbell. Patrick, welcome to the show. Hey, nice. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Now, let's start by kind of figuring out what makes you tick. Uh, what, what, what drives or motivates you to be an entrepreneur and work on your business every day? Is there a, is there a favorite quote maybe that you can share or, or just, just tell us in your own words, like what gets you out of bed every day? Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, where, where do I start? I guess, um, there's, uh, I think the, the biggest thing actually is, is a little bit different than I think what most, or actually I don't think it's that uncommon, but it's really, I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder, um, to, to say the least. Um, I think, you know, I come from a, you know, a very blue collar family, um, you know, where, you know, we were worried about, you know, strikes and things like that, you know, being out of work when, you know, my, uh, when I was younger, um, with my parents, but, and I think that kind of really created a little bit of a really hard work mentality around, um, you know, getting out of bed and, and making sure you put in a full day's work and, you know, whether it's, um, you know, working at a, you know, an office or working on your own company just making sure you really, really get things moving. And, um, I think the other thing that kind of goes along with that is, um, there's this speech by Teddy Roosevelt that he gave, I think it was like in 1899 to, the Chicago press corps or something like that. And, um, it's called, I can't remember exactly what it's called. It's like the doctrine of a strenuous life. And he talks about how, um, you know, if you've, if you've been born, um, you know, with, with any means and when he means means, he means, you know, basically whether it's, you know, middle-class, upper-class, you know, whether you got to a good school, like if you've been given any opportunity or any privilege, um, you, you have an op opportunity and also an obligation to, you know, however you got that opportunity to really make, make something of yourself and give back to, to the universe. And so that's really, those, those two things really drive me and, and kind of keep me moving and, and give me a little bit of a, a good chip on my shoulder. That's great. Uh, I was looking through your, your LinkedIn profile and it looked like, it, like earlier in your career, were you, were you working for a nonprofit? Yeah, that's actually, oh, that's, no one really asks about that. Yeah, I am. Um, so in college, I was part of this, um, this organization where one of the, it was the scholarship program. And, um, one of the requirements was you had to do volunteering for a certain amount of time during a semester during the year. Um, it was really kind of interesting as I, um, 
I, I did some like traditional kind of volunteering, helping out at like a boys and girls club and helping out in some other places. And then I thought, um, oh, it'd be really interesting if I like, did my own thing, you know, because I started seeing some um, different holes in, you know, different organizations. And I thought it'd be really interesting to, to kind of, you know, do my own thing and, and build my own nonprofit essentially. And so um, I ended up building um, Bridgebright, which um, we evolved a little bit. We started off as kind of a, a little bit of an offshoot of like Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And then we evolved into actually doing more data and grant consulting for different um, organizations. So um, getting grants and getting government money has become a um, lot tougher than it was 10, 15 years ago because everything's very data driven. And a lot of these um, organizations, they just don't collect data on you know, how many kids you know, they're serving or how many you know, people they're helping with you know, food and stuff like that. And so we started, you know, giving back and basically giving free, you know, consulting to help them basically get their data in order so that they could, you know, get more grants. And so, yeah, I did that for, for, um, it was not only in college, but a little bit outside of college. And then I kind of handed it off and in to a couple of different people because it became a little fragmented, um, in a couple of different, uh, areas around the world. And yeah, that was, a. I don't really get to talk about that much because no one asks about it. So I'm glad you did <laughs> give me, give me a little nostalgia here in terms of in terms of college and all that kind of fun stuff. That's great. So let's talk about, uh, price intelligently, uh, and where the, idea for the product came from. So how did you, and I guess your co-founder is Aaron, right? Aaron White? Yeah, Aaron and uh, Christopher, Christopher O'Donnell as well. So, um, I mean, really it was kind of funny because, uh, so my background's in econometrics and math. And so um, I worked for the U.S. intelligence community out of college and I worked for um, Google um, for a little while as well. And um, at both places basically was doing, you know, econ modeling and, you know, creating different ways to find um, some sort of optimization through data. And um, I had an opportunity at a startup um, that I, when I left Google that I worked at for about a year to work on pricing. And I started utilizing some of these models um, to basically come up with better pricing for these folks. And I started realizing how important pricing was. And what's kind of cool is that these two other guys that, you know, I ended up being my co-founders, they also were working on um, you know, pricing, um, when they were more hardcore product folks where I was a little more data and a little more biz dev focused. Um, and so we linked up and, you know, we basically, I mean, honestly, it wasn't because we had this like brilliant idea and we're like, Oh my God, pricing is the next trillion dollar company. It was more like, I was like, there's something here. Like there's definitely a market. Everything has a price and I don't like my job. Um, and I want to leave. <laughs> and so I've always wanted to try something. And, and so we, we kind of jumped in and, um, you know, fortunately it's worked out so far. Um, and we'll see, well, I'm sure it'll continue to work out so far in the, the future here. But, um, yeah, it's, it was, was, uh, not, a there's no like stroke of genius or anything like that, that really led to, uh, led to things. Well, lots of people have, ideas all the time and they do nothing about it. So what, what did you guys do? What was the next action you took once you, you sort of realized that there was a potential opportunity here? Yeah. So really, I mean, I, I, I joke about it a little bit. Um, I think we, I typically, um, 
you know, or in that case, we, we kind of lucked into some of the next steps. And so what I mean by that is um, we, we had, we built some basic models for measuring things like price elasticity and what's called relative preference analysis. And we get into that um, and how people can do that on their own in a little bit. But um, basically we, were, we had this like software and we were like, all right, what do we do? Like, well, let's go try and sell it as like a traditional piece of software. Um, and so we did that and um, it was working and it was, you know, it was doing well, but no hyper growth or anything crazy. And so um, we started like really getting into marketing and like doing out inbound, you know, the inbound playbook, um, HubSpot's in town. We happened to get a free HubSpot instance. Um, and so we just started, you know, running the HubSpot playbook and all of a sudden we started getting folks who came to us, um, and, you know, was basically like, Hey, like we really like the data. We really like what you're doing, but we don't want to do the work. Can you do the work for us? And we were like, okay. And so, um, we ended up becoming a little bit more of a tech enabled service where, you know, you have to buy our software and services together essentially to, to get stuff moving. And so to answer your question a little bit more, you know, point blank, basically what we did is we started just pounding the pavement, um, and doing kind of traditional, the traditional kind of customer development, um, you know, starting to do basic marketing and then, you know, starting to, to get those first kernels of customers that we could start iterating the, the product and, you know, the whole, the whole piece of everything on. What kind of customer development did you do? Um, so we, we started, interesting enough, we started doing the things that we now do for other companies. And so, um, pricing all comes down to what's called quantifying your buyer personas. And so what we started doing in terms of our customer development, and we didn't have really, really high, um, you know, end values here at this point was we basically started like asking them, um, about their pain points around what they were looking for in terms of help with pricing, um, their willingness to pay around, getting rid of the pricing problem off their backs, essentially, um, different value propositions and things like that. And it's kind of an interesting point because a lot of people, and we work with all kinds of tech companies from Atlassian and Autodesk all the way down to, you know, growth stage startups, like along the entire stack, like a lot of times what we find is people try to like really AB test their way out of things. And when you're an early stage company, unless you you hit some virality, you don't have like any traffic to A/B test anything. Um, so it's one of those things where we're talking and having those really really high profile and high um, high surface area conversations with your customers um, or your potential customers really help like shape who those customers are and and where we're headed with them. So when I looked at your website, uh, it wasn't clear to me initially whether price intelligently was a software product or if it was some kind of productized consulting package, right? Is like, I was like, is this a service these guys provide or is it actually a product that I, I sign up to? Um, so, and, and, and as, as I got into it, I, there, there is a software product behind what you guys do. But, but I'm curious, like, what led you to that path? Like, when people started saying to you, hey, you know, we want to do this, and we, but we don't want to do the work, like, it seems like just setting up some kind of consulting business would have been the obvious thing to do. Or is that what you did do initially? Yeah, it, it's, it's essentially what we did. I think what we found is we looked at the product and we're like, okay, in, in a reasonable amount of time, and you know we're reasonably intelligent people, 
are we going to be able to automate what we're doing in a productized way? Um, and we looked at it and there were, there were no obvious answers and we spent, you know, countless hours trying to figure out, all right, well, what if we did this? What if we hosted their pricing page? What if we did all these different things? And, um, it was one of those things where eventually the answer was just like, well, you know, what if you just threw some people at it? Right. And, um, the way, (laughs) the way that we were pricing, was basically in a manner that we didn't have to worry about, um, you know, getting horrible or good margins because margins were, um, you know, we were able to price in a way that, you know, we were having, you know, better margins than a lot of SaaS companies just because of the nature of what we were doing. And so what we did is we, we naturally went into, you know, it's, it's not quite consulting. It's more of a tech enabled service and it's a, you know, a nuance that only I probably care about. But the reason I care about it is because, um, what we're doing is you can't just hire us to like talk to you or give you advice or do those ty- or look at your data. It's like you have to use our software um, and you have to buy, you know, service on top of it. And what we've done since then is we, we launched something called ProfitWell about two years ago, which is a free tool to get your SaaS metrics um, and it plugs right into your billing system. And, um, you know, we're the only one on the market that's free, the only one on the market that's 100% accurate. And what that's allowed us to do is we now have more of a central traditional software place um, that we're starting to fuse both the price intelligently service and more productized service um, onto that platform um, so that eventually uh, within you know probably the next 18 months, every single person who works with price intelligently will have a software instance of our product um, that they can use and it'll feel a lot more software-y, um, but there'll still probably be a human element to it. Let's talk uh, a little bit about the product. Sure. Just explain to me like how it actually works. So in the intro, I talked about uh, how you gather data from multiple sources and then you use your own proprietary algorithm to to come up with these recommendations. But what what is sort of else is going on? Like where do you get these data sources from to start with? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way the way our software works and and frankly this is you can use um you know different models and and not even use our software to get some of this data or similar data but um typically what you find with with pricing is that the only person who can really tell you willingness to pay what they want in terms of packaging and even their positioning is really around that actual customer and so the way that our software works and the way that you know some of these econ models work so is basically you actually go to your customer and through survey data, um, collect survey data in the right way, whether it's around figuring out willingness to pay or figuring out which pieces of the product are most and least preferred, um, and basically plugging that data, cleansing it through an algorithm, and then getting things like price elasticity um, or relative preference data. And what that allows you to do is essentially go directly from the customer and understand where they're looking in terms of, you know, how they feel and how they value value your product in particular. Okay. Uh, t- tell me about the size of the company. Like how many people do you have working there right now? Um, so right now, I believe we just accepted an offer on number 30. Um, and so we're, we're, we're growing and I think we were only about 14, like nine months ago. So it's been a little crazy in terms of growth, but, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of where, where we're at. And I don't know, I'm, I'm flabbergasted even just saying that based on, you know, where we were just, you know, a year ago even. 
All right. So you guys launched in 2012 and it's 2000 coming to the end of 2016 now and you have 30 employees. Just give us a sense of the the growth trajectory in terms of employees. What did the first couple of years look like and uh, what were you doing to, to grow the business? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, so for the first nine months, it was just me, um, just me working full time. And I think it was, um, you know, that, that was a bit of a mistake, right? I think there's plenty of folks out there, you know, listening, I'm sure who are trudging along on their own. And I think it's one of those things where it's, definitely doable, but it, it, it puts a lot of fatigue and, and a lot of like, you know, wishing on luck essentially to make sure you succeed just because, you know, there's two heads better than one and, you know, three founders are better than, than one as well. And, um, it wasn't to say like, you know, my part-time co-founders were helping a lot. It was just one of those things where, you know, three full-time people would have been great. Um, but you know, we, we got, you know, lucky hopefully, um, or I'll characterize it as luck. Um, there's a lot of hard work where we were just kind of pounding the pavement in terms of inbound. Um, and then nine months in, we hired, uh, Peter Zotto, who's our GM of the price intelligently side. And he just, um, you know, I think we got, uh, again, call it luck, but we got really lucky with Peter in particular, um, you know, who came on board and, and really kind of, you know, allowed us to start to hire out, you know, sales organization and services organization. And what was really interesting in the first two years, we, we had no engineer, full-time engineering or product talent. Um, we were very fortunate that our product was not customer facing. Um, because the data is really what people were after. And so we didn't, you know, didn't have a software product to give them for that data. It was more just kind of interface through different reporting. And so we didn't really need someone full time. And then, um, a lot of the growth was really coming from inbound. I mean, our content has driven, you know, I would say 80 to 90% of the revenue so far in the business. And, um, that really, really helped us kind of continue down a path of, you know, being able to hire and, Made, made a lot of classic hiring mistakes, um, hiring for right now versus the right person or the, you know, the person who's going to scale. Um, I think everyone kind of has to make that mistake, even though we've heard it all too many times at this point. Um, but overall, I think it was one of those things that about two years in, we were trying to figure out like really how we scaled the business. Um, and that really was going to be through more software. And so we brought on a CPO and then, um, now at this point, you know, four or four and a half years in, we have, you know, basically half the company's engineering and product and the other half is, you know, sales and, and account management at this point. So it's kind of a little bit, you know, there's plenty of details in between there, of course, but it's it's just one of those things where it's, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely been a grind. There was no like, oh, we just hired 10 people in, you know, two months. It was just like adding the right person, you know, every month or so. Who was doing the inbound marketing in those first nine months? Was that you? Yeah. So, and it, it, frankly, it still is me. Um, we we finally, for the first time in the history of the company, have a um, full time director of marketing coming on on Monday. Um, so it's a little ironic saying, "Oh, this is where most of our revenue comes from," but we still didn't have someone dedicated to it. Um, it was just really hard and it was probably, 
you know, mostly on me just not being comfortable with anyone that we interviewed for my own, you know, paranoid reasons. But um, like it was really hard and it was a really protective role finding someone that we felt was really going to do a good job. And so um, we had like different contractors here and there. We had different like contra- content, you know, marketers here and there. But um, really it was me throughout this whole time period. And now because we're trying to scale even even bigger, we're absolutely going to need to get some heavier talent there. So what were the kind of things that you were doing with Inbound? Were you mostly blogging or were there other things that you did in those nine months? I'm trying to figure out, like, it's just you full-time for nine months. And at the end of the nine months, you're in a place where you can hire a full-time GM to come on. So either you guys as as co-founders put in a lot of money into bootstrapping the business and being able to pay people, or you did some pretty good stuff in those nine months to be able to generate enough revenue. And I'm sort of, which one was it? Yeah, it was, it was definitely the, the latter. We didn't, um, <laughs> there was no money put in. Um, I cashed out my 401k to survive for those nine months essentially. And it wasn't a big 401k because it wasn't at, you know, Google that long. But, um, and so we, because of this kind of hybrid managed model, this managed service model, we were able to get um, some good revenue coming through the door um, in the first um, the first few months. And so um, it was one of those things where I think we closed our first six months with about $130,000 in revenue. Um, and so it was one of those things where all of a sudden we could start, you know, afford to hire someone. And, you know, I think we were a little conservative with you know, it wasn't we, we, theoretically we could have hired a couple of people with that, you know, in terms of runway if I was going to continue and I didn't get paid really anything until um, really last year, frankly, um, you know, definitely enough to survive, but not a decent salary until last year. And so, um, yeah, it was one of those things where we grew pretty slow and um, that was, you know, in hindsight, maybe not the best decision, but at the time, I think it made sense for us to, to kind of grow through our own revenue. So what were you doing, blogging? Was that your main kind of content marketing? Yeah, just, oh yeah, that's right. Sorry, I knew you asked that. Um, Yeah, just straight up blogging. I mean, and it was was one of those things where like, I I guarantee you if we were smarter, um, you know, in terms of like, you know, oh, like, you know, if if we were, you know, growth hackers, you know, early on or something like that, we would not have... um, we probably wouldn't have continued blogging just because like it, it took like a good number of months before all of a sudden we started getting this nice flywheel of leads coming in. I mean, we would write, I would spend, you know, enormous amount of time on a blog post that, you know, is significant, is deep because we don't write like, you know, listicle content. We write really deep posts and, you know, I'd get like, 30 views on it, you know, and like, I think I was like, all right, this is just part of the, you know, part of the experience and part of like grinding away. And, you know, those posts eventually would get, you know, more and more and they, you know, became really good deep content. But overall it was one of these things where, um, yeah, it was just, it was definitely a grind to, to get those first leads and get those first lists going. You, you mentioned the, the HubSpot playbook earlier for people who are not familiar with that. Can you just explain what that is and, and kind of how you use that? Yeah, absolutely. So HubSpot, um, just to start real basic, it's a marketing automation platform. Um, and so the playbook, what I refer to is basically having an offer, you know, in our case, it was an ebook on pricing strategy. Um, and then um, also having an offer for, which is for us, it's like a middle to bottom of the funnel offer, what's called a price optimization assessment. And then basically using those offers to, or driving leads to those offers through um, content, through writing a blog post and then 
you know, taking that blog post and atomizing it down to, you know, Twitter links, LinkedIn links, stuff like that. And then using, you know, using that content to basically drive leads. And then once you get those leads, following up on those leads and, you know, getting them on the phone if they're qualified and kind of taking them down your sales funnel. So that's, that's kind of what I mean by the HubSpot playbook. And it's evolved since then to be a little more complicated than that. But that's really what we were doing in the beginning. Just like, Hey, here's a piece of content. Want to learn more, download this ebook. And then they get an email for me to get on a call and we get on the call and, you know, we basically talk about pricing and then, you know, kind of evolve from there. Are you an entrepreneur looking to buy a profitable online business or a founder ready to sell? Bupos is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses. With their exclusive listings, as well as listings from other marketplaces and the option to submit your own deal for approval, Bupos has you covered. Plus, they're the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers of recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding without personal guarantees. And their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to start your entrepreneurial journey or sell your business at the right valuation with bupos.com. Got it. So, so you were using the playbook as kind of a framework to say, this is what our inbound marketing strategy is going to look like. And I'm just going to kind of execute each of these steps that the playbook kind of calls out. And, uh, it sounds like you kind of experience what a lot of people do, which is you initially write blog posts or create content and you just think, Oh my God, was it worth it? Right. I mean, I had like 10 yeah. people look at it and, and then over time, if you continue with that and you're, and you, you, you sort of regularly and consistently creating this content, um, uh, the, I think the, the analogy used of a flywheel is so accurate because that's exactly what happens, right? You start to build this momentum and it doesn't seem that hard as it used to before. And you're also motivated because you're seeing better results coming from everything that you're creating, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a lot of people, they, they do give up early on. And I think it's one of those things where it's painful to watch because, um, you know, they're, it's if, if they just did that extra, the next post, like the next post was going to go to the top of the page on Hacker News and they just decided to give up, which, you know, is, is typically the wrong thing to do because content, you know, it's, it's a compounding channel it's, or process. It's not a, uh, it's not something you're going to see instant results out of. From what I understand, you also went through some, some health challenges while you were building this, this business. Um, what was going on there? Was, was that just kind of getting burned out by just working too much? Yeah. So there were, there was actually two big ones. I mean, one, like I, I mean, my health, I, you know, sacrificed it, you know, I don't saying sacrifice makes me sound like a martyr. I, I think I just, you know, I just stopped, you know, essentially like really, you know, going to the gym, you know, eating well, because, you know, and, and you know how it is like when you're working, you know, 18 hour days or, you know, long days and, you know, the easiest thing to give up and, you know, hey, I need to write that next blog post is, you know, the gym or you know, going and preparing food rather than ordering takeout or something like that. And so, you know, for me, it definitely took a hit, um, you know, and, and definitely got burnt out like multiple times. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough, you know, and it's not complaining or anything. It's just more of, you know, it's something that I need to be more cognizant of. And thankfully now, you know, as we're starting to, to reach a, you know, decent, decent size and capacity, we're starting, you know, I can, 
you know, I can take a, you know, day where I don't have to, you know, work those 18 hours, of course, and there's still long days, but it's, it's not something that's constant, you know, I can trust the team and, you know, trust things out. And, um, yeah, and there was another, I mean, there was, there was actually, you know, most recently, um, and I haven't really talked about this much, but, um, I actually also went through a bout with cancer, um, during the company as well. Um, and that was, you know, if that happened, you know, early days when I didn't have health insurance, I would have been totally screwed. Um, but, but I guess thankfully in, in, in a kind of silver lining way, um, went through that, um, you know, about, um, you know, just over a year or just under a year ago. Um, and everything's great now. Everything's good. Um, you know, in remission, that kind of stuff. But, and thankfully, um, it was caught really nice and early and everything, but, one of those things where I think you got to take care of yourself and, you know, it's, it's something you got to play the long game. Um, I guess that's the biggest piece of advice I'd give on, on that side of the, that side of the coin. Well, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that, um, you, you kind of beat that, that kind of struggle with cancer and, and kind of came through and, and you're all clear. So that's good stuff. All right. So what I'd love to do is to, Let's think about a founder who is listening to this episode right now. Maybe they don't have the budget yet to go and hire someone like a price intelligently to help them come up with their pricing strategy. So what I'd love to do is to be able to pick your brain and say, let's give them uh, an overview of how to come up with a pricing strategy and then to walk through that process and talk about some of the specific actionable things that they can do to to do a better job at coming up with the right plans for their SaaS product. Yeah, definitely. I think um, Overall, it really comes down to a, a few different steps. And I think the, the most central one and, and really where all the other steps revolve around is um, defining and quantifying your buyer personas. Um, so when I talk about buyer personas and, you know, a lot of people have written about buyer personas for you know more than a decade now, but it's really getting a couple of different profiles of the different types of customers that you're going to target. And the reason that these are so important is because everything that you're doing is, is basically leading to forcing that buyer into a purchasing decision or coaxing them into a purchasing decision um, or justifying the price. And so normally what we recommend doing is first, you know, just on a sheet of paper, Excel spreadsheet, something putting down what those three different um, or five different, you know, types of people that you're going to target. And, there's a couple of ways to slice and dice them, but um, it might be role. So you might be selling to sales Susie and marketing Mary. It could be size. It could be enterprise Eddie and mid-market Marvin or something like that. But basically figure out what those profiles are. And that's, that's essentially the first step. And then the second step is to validate or invalidate those hypotheses that you have about those particular buyers. And so um, with pricing in particular, there's a couple of different types of data that you're really looking for. Um, one is demographic data, just because you want to know a lot about those particular buyers. And this doesn't necessarily mean things like gender, age, unless you're in a B2C environment. But if you're in a B2B environment, it might be things like size of the company, size of the team, et cetera. Um, the other 
two pieces of information you really want to collect are um, feature or relative value um, on features or value propositions. So this is just a jargony way to say, like, what do they want out of the product? What don't they care about out of the product? And then third, and, and almost actually easy, ironically, to collect is the pricing data. And so to collect that feature value data, that relative preference data, what we typically recommend is basically setting up a survey um, and forcing them, them being your buyer, your potential buyer, to make a decision. And so instead of asking them, hey, I have these four features, you know, what do you think about them? Or, you know, rank each of them on a scale of one to 10, you basically show them the four features and you say, hey, which of these is the most important to you? And which of these is the least important to you? And um, I can send over some additional information to that shows you how to actually calculate this data and, and get some nice, really good visuals out of it. But basically that starts to help you figure out what your packaging should look like. So for buyer persona A, like what do we need to make sure that that package or that product has? And same thing for B and C. Um, and on the pricing side, it's actually, as I alluded to, it's ironically, you know, pretty easy to collect. And it basically is just a function of asking the right questions. And so rather than asking someone point blank, you know, how much are you willing to pay for this? You'd instead ask, you know, at what point is this product, you know, maybe it's at what monthly price is this product way too expensive that you would never consider purchasing it? At what point is it getting expensive that you consider purchasing it? At what point is it a really good deal? And sometimes most importantly, at what point is it too cheap that you question the quality of it? And if you start to graph those answers and, and kind of calculate those answers a bit, you start to get a really, really good look into price elasticity and you're quantifying that buyer even more. And so at the end of this exercise, once you've collected this data and kind of put it into that spreadsheet or whatever that piece of paper you're using to kind of catalog these buyers, all of a sudden you have a really, really good look at what these three different buyers are you know, really caring about, what they don't care about, what their willingness to pay is for your particular product. And then ultimately, you can start to make some decisions. And that's the third step here is basically picking who you're going to target with that buyer and then formulating your pricing strategy based off that. So if buyer A cares about, um, you know, doesn't really care about much, just cares about the core product and is willing to pay 50 bucks a month, then your first tier is going to include that core product and is going to be 50 bucks a month. And then buyer B might care about the core product plus things like integrations and analytics and is willing to pay 100 bucks per month. And then all of a sudden you have buyer, you know, buyer B's tier. And so it's one of those things where all of a sudden you've kind of cut through all the crap as we say, you figured out what that buyer really cares about and you've kind of aligned those particular buyers to your pricing strategy. And then the final step is just to make this part of a process because your buyer is going to be constantly changing, your competitors are going to be changing, your product's going to be changing. And ultimately, you want to make sure that you're keeping a pulse of that particular buyer every single quarter or every six months so you can kind of collect this data and, and make sure that you're you know, optimizing your pricing strategy just like you're optimizing your product um, or even your customer development. So there's a lot of different nuances, but that's the that's kind of the core of what you need to focus on. And um, you know, ultimately, there's there's no magic formula. It just takes a bit of work. And fortunately, the work that you're doing is also going to pay dividends for you know product development and marketing development because all of a sudden you're going to know who you're going to sell to and ultimately what their willingness to pay looks like. So you can align your entire funnel to that particular buyer. Okay, so I, I want to go back to what you started out with, which was the buyer persona. And you're right, there is a lot of 
material, uh, you know, out there on the web talking about personas. Um, but it sounds, it sounds like at this point you're saying it can be a simple one page summary or kind of a one page summary of all your potential buyer personas. You're not trying to write a biography on each, each persona. You're simply trying to, uh, figure out if you had to classify your customers into three, four or five different types of customers, what would those uh, classifications look like? Um, uh, what e- either it could be based on the role, as you said, whether it's somebody in the marketing department versus somebody who's uh, in sales, it could be based on the size of a business in terms of maybe uh, we have one person, we have, uh, we have, uh, you know, consultants who use this product and we also have small teams of five to 10 people who use it and each of their needs are going to be different. And so the whole idea from what I understood, what you said was you want to do that because then by having those each individual persona, you're going to be able to drive that towards a specific sales outcome. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah, exactly. And and the biggest piece, and, and I think you might be going into this next, is that you can't just get in a room and just write down what you think. Um, like, you know something about your buyer, don't get me wrong, but most of the time you have to actually go to the source and collect data, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, to really figure out, you know, what's making that buyer tick so that you can align that, you know, not only for your business, but ultimately your pricing strategy. Now, the the survey that you talked about, is that something that you would recommend doing only with existing customers or prospective customers or both, or does it not matter? Yeah, that's a great question. Ideally, you want to do three different sources. Um, and, and when you're just starting off, like I would always recommend just like start really small, like maybe just send a pricing survey to your current customers um, or maybe just send one of those relative preference surveys to your current customers. But um, in an ideal world, you're collecting from um, current customers, um, your prospects. So these are people who have heard of you but haven't converted. And then you're essentially your target customer who has never heard of you. And so the way you can source that last one is that there are these companies um, that are called market panel providers that can get you, you know, anyone from a soccer mom in you know, the middle of Kansas or a soccer dad in the middle of Kansas all the way to a Fortune 500 CIO. Um, and that allows you to kind of look at, okay, for people who haven't heard of us and people who haven't used our product, here's what they're thinking. For people who are not using our product but have heard of us, here's what they're thinking. And then people who have heard of us and are using the product, here's what they're thinking. And theoretically, all three of them should be giving you different answers because once you get your branding in there, your pricing, you know, willingness to pay should be higher. And then once you're in your product, um, you know, the value and the willingness to pay should be a lot more malleable as well. Now, you you mentioned two things that I picked up on the survey. One was asking about uh, features and which feature they would find the most valuable versus which one they would find the least valuable. And the second part of it was around the price in terms of what price 
would you not consider this product through to the other end of the scale, which would be um, what price would be too low that you might start to question the the quality of this product. So kind of going back to the features, when we're thinking about designing a survey to ask that question, how are we coming up with those features? What what are the features we're looking for? Are they based on relative price that we think people will are willing to pay, or just how how would somebody come up with those potential answers? Yeah, good question. I, I think it's it's a little bit dependent on um, on on what you're trying to achieve. If you're if you're just doing your baseline, like you've never done your pricing before, um, typically what we recommend is look at anything that you would differentiate. So in an extreme example, it's not like you would differentiate the ability to log in to the product, right? Um, you know, that's a feature you don't have to ask about. Um, whereas for your product, you might differentiate things like support, analytics, integrations, um, you know, and, and maybe some aspects of the core product. And so we recommend kind of starting with those main kind of differentiable features that you have, whether you're differentiating on them now or you have some sort of inkling that you might differentiate in the future. And so um, if I'm looking at, you know, support integrations, analytics and your core features, those are four things that you kind of look at to make sure that you're kind of parsing together and, and asking those questions about. When you want to get a little more complicated, what you can do is you can, and this is a little bit hard to, to kind of visualize on a podcast, but what you can start to do is actually break each of those main features down. So instead of just asking about support versus analytics versus integrations, you might ask about, you know, live chat versus phone versus a dedicated account manager, you know, the different pieces of support. And that would be a separate question. Um, and so that would allow you to kind of figure out, well, hey, if people really, really want support or better support or they really value support, what aspect of support are they really looking for? Um, and you can, you know, you can also compare and contrast things like just your roadmap. So maybe you're not differentiating anything and you just want to figure out what piece of your roadmap should you build next. Um, it's another way you can use this product, even though it's not really, or this, this methodology, I should say it's, even though it's not really a, a, you know, pricing function, um, or even your value propositions, you know, you're, you're kind of comparing and contrasting what you're going to put on the, you know, H1 of your homepage. Basically you can kind of compare and contrast what, what those look like amongst your customers customers. Um, so long story short, you know, the big thing is, is that it's a tool where you can use to compare value amongst your different personas. Um, and ultimately it's one of those things where, you know, you can, you can use it to your benefit depending on kind of what stage you're at. Okay. So the goal at this point with asking the question about the features is to figure out what features or functionality each buyer persona um, finds the most valuable. Is that, is that what we're trying to do? Yep. And in some cases, the least valuable too. You know, if you all, if you think analytics is the most important thing, but your customers come back and everyone thinks it's, you know, the least valuable, it's, it's really insightful to make sure that you, you know, maybe don't spend as much time building that or, or advertising that or marketing that. Yeah. As in terms of the pricing, um, where, from what I understand, we're trying to give people a range to sort of figure out what, what is the, the highest possible price 
uh, this this buyer group would consider versus um, what price would be basically too cheap where they would start to question whether it was right for them or they would question the quality of the product. The two questions for you there is number one is like, uh, how, how do you sort of initially come up with that price range? And also when you ask that question, is it better to ask that, give them a, as, as an open question where they just give you a number or are you giving them some kind of multiple choice kind of um, options on what uh, possible answers could be for each of those questions? Yeah, so actually we recommend just going wide open range. Um, and the reason for that is because like human beings and the reason that these questions work so well is that we think about value very much in a spectrum. And so we know that, for instance, you know, the computer in front of us is more expensive than the glass of water we might be drinking from. Um, and because of that, um, you know, value being on that spectrum, we don't want to anchor them um, in a particular point at a particular point, mainly because the value that they might see in the product may be very, very different than the value that we think is in the product. So what we recommend doing is actually when you're asking these questions, you know, what point is this way too expensive or what point is this too cheap? Actually keep it open-ended um, because that's also going to give you a really, really nice look at the elasticity of those particular users as well. And so, um, yeah, we would recommend keeping it open-ended. Okay. So let's say we've done the survey and we have this data back. Um, what, what are your, your sort of guidelines on, on how to analyze that data? What, what are we looking for and what sort of outcome are we trying to get to? You know, it's tough because every, every data, every data outputs a little bit different, but, um, Really, when you're looking at the relative preference data, you're going to be looking for the biggest differences between these different types of personas. Um, and if there are no differences, meaning everyone kind of cares about everything, all the same things, then you open yourself up to, you know, basically having a, you know, a non-differentiated pricing schemat, right? Where might be you give all the features away, you know, to everyone, but you differentiate on some sort of what's called a value metric. So maybe per user, per um, visit, per X, Y, or Z. Um, on the pricing side, you're really, one, you want to make sure that you can, you know, expect a good lifetime value for that particular customer. And so I can't tell you the number of times where, we see you know, a particular customer going after a particular um, one of their particular customers and they find out that that customer just isn't worth what they think that customer's worth because they don't see the value in the product. And so those are kind of the first, first two pieces. And then as you start to dig down the rabbit hole a little bit, you want to start figuring out as you look at this price elasticity data, you know, where you should be priced for these particular personas. Um, and you can start to peg your tiers based on where their willingness to pay is. Um, so if you're you know, separating your personas in small, medium, and large, all of a sudden you can have a small tier, a medium tier, and a large tier. Um, if you're separating them on role, it might be a little bit more complicated, but you might have a sales package, a marketing package, and a project manager package. But really, once you start to see this data, you'll find that there isn't necessarily a um, you know, a picture perfect answer, but there's definitely these trends that you'll start to see that'll guide kind of where you put the different puzzle pieces to set up your pricing. 
Okay, good. That's useful stuff. Now, one of the things you mentioned was doing this, not not, not sort of thinking of this as a one-off exercise, but doing it regularly. Why why is that important? Yeah, it's it's particularly important because there are if you think about just just imagine your customer never changes, your competition never changes and the market never changes, which you know, three things that are never true, right? <laughs> Even if that's the case, your product is theoretically going to be constantly improving, right? Whether it's in terms of brand, um, you know, you just get, you know, better looking because you start to sign some big clients and all of a sudden you start to become the brand for X, Y, or Z. Um, or, you know, just because you start adding features or start fixing features or doing a number of different things. And so because your price is the measure of the exchange, it's like the exchange rate on the value that you're creating. It's the actual representation of the value that you've created. You want to make sure that you're keeping ahead of that particular value so that you can, you know, start to take advantage of those different improvements that you're making in order to, you know, monetize better. And so even, you know, now if we take those imaginary assumptions off, you know, the market's going to constantly be changing. You know, the you know, your competitors and your customers are going to be changing in what they need. And so if you keep the pulse of what your customers are looking for in terms of value, you can stay ahead of the curve and, and ultimately make sure um, that you're, you know, pricing properly. Um, we have just a number, number of people that we know who, you know, they haven't changed their prices in 10 years. And what's crazy about that is that it's, it's 10 years of lost opportunity, you know, and yeah, we can change your prices now, but all of a sudden it's like, you know, if their, if their prices were changed incrementally 10 years ago, they, they would have made so much more. They would be in such a different place and they wouldn't have anchored their customers at such a low price, even though they're giving away, you know, oodles and oodles of value. Yeah, and I guess that's the other thing as well, is if you leave it for so long, it becomes really hard to to increase your prices, even if you've added a ton of value to the product. Uh, as you said, you kind of people are anchored at a specific price and you've kind of trained them for years that this is what you're going to keep paying. Um, so I guess that's another good reason to to do that. Okay, great advice. Thank you for sharing that, Patrick. Um, it's time for our lightning round. I'm going to ask you a series of questions Ooh. and uh, just just answer them as quickly as you can. Ready? Cool. Let's do it. Uh oh. Do I have to answer? I have to answer them really quickly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do it. All right. So, what's the best piece of business advice that you've ever received? Uh oh, gosh. Now I'm. I was like really excited to go really quickly. Um. Oh my gosh. Uh, I have like so many pieces. Uh, we'll go with, um, success is a byproduct of excellence. Just do well and success will come. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? Ooh, um, wow. I'm a really bad lightning round participant. I should not be on a game show. Um, (laughs) just realizing that now I'm like, all of a sudden the first thing that comes to mind, I'm like, well, no, it's bad because of this. Um, uh, there's a book called influence. Um, I can't remember what it is, but it kind of talks about like the psychology of persuasion. I think that's actually the subtitle, the psychology of persuasion. The reason I would recommend it is because I think communication is something that, um, is, um, is really, really underestimated in terms of how powerful it is, um, in business. And I think more people should study how they communicate, whether it's through blogs, emails, um, speeches, phone calls, et cetera. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur? Uh, grit. Um, I think 
and I mean like actual grit. I know a lot of people talk about the hustle and all this other stuff, but I think a lot of people don't know what like resilience is. Um, so maybe I changed my answer to resilience. Um, I think, you know, even if everything goes perfectly for you, it's going to be an exorbitant amount of stress and, and hard work. And so, I mean, resilience is, is probably the number one thing I think it's, you know, that I see in terms of successful founders versus, versus those who are failing. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Um, uh, so I think I would go with habit. Um, so I meditate every day. Um, and I was a huge like cynic when it came to meditation. Um, I read a book called 10% happier, which I think is another book that everyone should read. Um, especially if you're cynical about like meditation, um, because it really kind of brought me around and meditation gives me what I like to call an extra second. So if I'm, you know, if it's something that normally would like really stress me out or get me angry or, you know, would get me too excited, it gives me an extra second to kind of level set my emotions when reacting to things. And I think it's, it's, that's what I can attribute it to. I, I meditate too. So you're preaching to the choir. Um, awesome. What's a new business idea that you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? Uh, quilting, the quilting market. Um, and I'm a hundred percent serious about that. So, <laughs> really? um, yeah. So, um, and it's one that I've kind of known for a while because my mom, like I'm from the Midwest in the States. And so she's, she's like a hardcore quilter. That's her hobby. Um, and quilting for those of you who don't know, that's like, it's what your grandma, like if she made you a blanket when you were a kid or a baby or when you're an adult, that's what, you know, quilting is making blankets. And, um, it's kind of funny because it's, it's, um, a $4 billion a year industry. Um, there are no modern companies in it. It's all these old school, 20, 30 year old companies. Um, and then the average median or the median household income of a quilting family is like 130,000 a year. Um, they spend like $6,000 a year on quilting supplies. And then they also, um, like 99% of them are on Facebook. Um, even though they're all like an older crowd, um, skewed very heavily towards, towards, um, you know, um, towards women. And so if I wasn't, if I wasn't doing price intelligently and not doing something like, you know, super sexy, like space or something AI or crazy, I would, I think I would be totally into the quilting market. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Ooh, um, that one's tough. Um, cause I try to keep as open book as possible. Okay. What's um, an interesting or fun fact about you that people do know? <laughs> <laughs> or, or less people know. Um, um, I'm trying to think of a good one. I can think of like little fun ones, but, um, um, Oh, like, you know, one that's like, I, the team knows, cause I think I, I wax nostalgia about it way too much. So I'm actually a national champion debater. Um, so I, uh, I went to the college I went to for on a debate scholarship. Um, and so it was one of those things where I basically practice, um, debate and speech as it's called for about 40 hours a week for, for four years. And so, wow. um, yeah, that's where, um, I mean, if you look at some of the blog posts that I write, like you'll notice if you read enough of them, they follow like a very, very similar pattern. Um, and it's just like a, it's a very like persuasive type pattern. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of where it comes from. Yeah. I had, um, I had 13 national finals and I won, I, I can't even, it sounds really arrogant, but I can't even remember how many state titles I won in Illinois. Um, but it was, um, yeah, it was definitely a fun ride. And actually what's funny is I've been, 
a joke that I'm basically trying to create my own debate team at Price Intelligently just because I loved that so much when I was in college. Cool. Um, yeah. And finally, what is one of your most important passions outside of your work? <laughs> passions outside of work? What are you talking about? <laughs> um, oh, I don't even know. I can't. I don't know. I was just talking to my girlfriend about this. Like, I need a hobby. Um, I think, okay, so I think... Um, kind of goes off my last answer. I, I really like reading speeches. Um, so I, I, I read and I critique for fun. This sounds so nerdy now that it's coming out of my mouth. This might be the fun fact, actually. This might be a better fun fact. So um, what I'll do is like, especially in like down ticket races, meaning like governorships or, um, you know, Senate or state or, you know, some others, I'll, I'll actually I'll, I'll get a, either a recording or a transcript of someone's speech. I'll critique it and then I'll send a critique to the campaign of whoever is I critiqued. Um, and sometimes get some really interesting back and forth with some, some interesting folks. Um, but yeah, I really, I should start a blog for that because, um, I've read a lot of like, um, I read like anthologies of speeches all the time. And I think I referenced actually, um, a speech earlier was Teddy Roosevelt's 1899, um, you know, speech, um, I still can't remember the name, but so I, I read a lot about that and I critique it. And so that's kind of a, a passion hobby of mine, even though I, uh, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, it's not something like playing soccer or something like that, I guess. It's not something that's traditional, I suppose. See, this is why I love doing the lightning round in like a few minutes I get to learn. I've learned more about you than I did talking for the first 30 minutes. Right. Yeah, I feel like you should start with the lightning round. And I also yeah, like how, like, by the third or fourth lightning round question, the answer started flowing. Because I was like, at first I was like, oh, my book, what book? Like, I can't think of anything. Yeah. But um, no, it's cool. I like it. Cool. Patrick, I really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you for making the time to to chat with me and uh, sharing your experiences and, and insights uh, about pricing strategy and, and the story of Price Intelligently. Now, if uh, you want to find out more about Price Intelligently, you can go to priceintelligently.com. And if folks want to get in touch with you, Patrick, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, best way is to just go right to patrick at priceintelligently.com. Um, that's, you know, you can email me and, and it might take me a little bit while I triage my email inbox a little bit, but I typically get, uh, get back to everyone. So it should be, should be fairly, fairly easy to get to me. Sweet. Patrick, thanks again. It's been a pleasure. I wish you all the best. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for the time. Cheers. Do you dream of owning a profitable online business or are you looking to sell yours? Bupos.com is the number one platform for entrepreneurs and founders alike. With Bupos, you can discover exclusive listings, browse listings from other marketplaces, or submit your own deal for approval. As the first platform to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers, Bupos makes it easier than ever to acquire a recurring revenue business without personal guarantees. Their experienced M&A advisory team is dedicated to supporting you throughout the process, ensuring a smooth transaction. Don't miss out on this exciting opportunity. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to sell your business or find your next venture.
Are you still wrestling with rigid spreadsheets that slow down your team? JotForm Tables is a solution you've been looking for. JotForm Tables combines the power of a spreadsheet with the flexibility of a database. You can collect your data through customizable online forms and JotForm Tables automatically organizes and stores all the data submitted through your JotForm forms. You can also import and export files and collaborate with your team effortlessly. All changes are synced in real time, so everyone is always on the same page. But JotForm Tables is more than just a spreadsheet alternative with conditional formatting, data visualization, and more than 250 integrations, it's a complete productivity platform for your team. You can even automate tasks and workflows to save time. Ready to centralize your data, boost your team's efficiency, and take your productivity to new heights? Sign up for free at sasclub.io slash jotform. That's sasclub.io slash jotform. Attention SaaS founders, are you determined to scale your B2B business to that coveted million dollar ARR milestone? I've got something that can help you get there faster. Introducing the SaaS Club newsletter, your weekly companion on the journey to SaaS success. Packed with proven strategies, practical insights, and exclusive interviews with B2B SaaS founders who've been where you are, this newsletter is your ticket to accelerated growth. Each week, in just five minutes, you'll gain access to a treasure trove of growth tactics, lessons learned, and insider tips to help you navigate the challenges of the early stages and scale your business to to seven figures and beyond. So why wait? Become part of a 4,000 plus strong community of SaaS founders and entrepreneurs who are already harnessing these insights to drive their growth. Visit sasclub.io slash newsletter and subscribe to the SaaS Club newsletter today. Gain the support and expertise you need to keep forging ahead on your SaaS journey.